Welcome to Teachers Talk Texts, the podcast where English teachers share their insights and interpretations of texts currently studied in BCE English. I'm your host, Claire Mackey. Let's dive into today's episode. In the spirit of reconciliation, Teachers Talk Texts acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, hello. Goodness, it has been a minute since I have released an episode. And for those listeners who have been wondering where I am, I'm back. I won't lie, 2022 commenced with an absolute bang and I've had a number of projects all competing for my time, but I have had every intention of getting back here as soon as possible. This episode, embarrassingly, was actually recorded back in January and has been sitting on my OneDrive, waiting patiently to be released since then. To Panita, my fabulous guest, thank you and apologies. Your incredible insights deserve better than to be hidden away for so long. For any teachers listening who think they might like to also join me to record an episode, which I promise will not be so long between recording and release, do reach out. I would love to hear from you. You can find me on LinkedIn or shoot me a message on Insta at Teachers Talk Texts. I hope you enjoy the episode. Anita, thank you so much for joining me on Teachers Talk Texts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's exciting. I'm really excited to talk about Pride and Prejudice tonight or today for this first episode of the 2022 season. Kind of can't believe it, actually. This podcast started as a like a lockdown hobby. Oh, I didn't in, realize that. Yeah, yeah. In I did listen to them all in lockdown, so it does make yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit lonely in lockdown, and here we are three. Like, well, this is the third year running now. We're still still going. People keep listening, so I'll still keep having conversations. But we are here to talk about Pride and Prejudice, which I would have to say is one of my favorite. It is one of my favorites. I love Austin so much, so I'm always happy to talk about her. And I think I'll just, seeing it's, you know, first, we're a bit, we're both a bit rusty. It's been the school holidays. Mm-hmm. I haven't recorded for a while. We'll just, we'll start with the first question, which is, <laughs> what is it that you love about Pride and Prejudice? It's hilarious. I love that it's so funny. And I love reading certain lines and then just cracking up laughing with, you know, how relatable. I think I laugh because I see so many people that I know in my world who are actually these characters. And I think, isn't that the best part, is that you you read it and you go, oh, I know someone just like that. And 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 once you start to realise who they are, it makes the characters come alive a little bit more and you can kind of predict what they're going to do next and go, oh, I just knew that person would do that because I guess they're a the character type, so they're the stereotype of, you know, all of these people that exist in our world still today. So I, I think that's why... I'm so drawn to it is every time I read it, I go, oh, yeah, that reminds me of so-and-so and and that reminds me of so-and-so. And And I don't think, I think Mrs. Bennett and her outrageousness just, and Mr. Collins, like they just never die. Like I I haven't stopped laughing at their reactions or their obliviousness, I guess, to, to their surroundings. So that's probably why I love it so much. So what you're telling me is that characters written in a, in a novel from hundreds of years ago, actually are the same as the people we see in our lives today. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I think we all know someone who's settled and we all know someone who's run into to love for the wrong reasons way too far. I studied this also when I was a teenager, but I don't think I understood it and I don't think 
I don't think I would have said that when I was 17 years old. I think I didn't, I didn't have enough life experience mm. to know it or to understand it. And I think even when I teach it, I try to flesh it out a little bit more to go, actually, you do know this person or who does it remind you of? And when they, you know, when students start to, to see that, they go, actually, I get it. But I maybe at 16 or 17, I wasn't mature enough to fully understand it. But yeah. Maybe you don't know who you are at 16 or 17, even though it, they, we all think we do at 16 or 17. Um, so maybe maybe that's that's part of the part of the the joy of studying novels, is it not? And novels from so long ago is to get a bit of an insight into humanity. Mm, mm. Mm. I guess we, the other thing though, like you talk about it being set so long ago. And I know you'll hear, like if you were to hear podcasts that, you know, like there's other ones where people discuss prime prejudice from, you know, all around the world. And mm. We say it's so old and it's set back in the day, but it's also so much of a reality of so many Eastern cultures. And I think, I think maybe, maybe I laugh even harder because I still see that in in some of the worlds or some of the, you know, so many cultural facets or knowing that that still exists in in so many countries that I've visited or in or even in you know friends' worlds as well of knowing that that is still very much the truth and, and, and I think there's still elements of it that is the truth today for for us maybe looking at it differently but still very much the truth so mm. it's mm. yeah it's very interesting and maybe that's why I laugh a little bit harder going oh I know someone who would have that exact reaction or you know so yeah that's very interesting. I love that insight actually and that idea that we, because I think I, I, you, you've called me out on, and that's I think fair. Like I see, I see Pride and Prejudice and the ideas of you know women as ultimately commodities that are designed to be you know used or transacted, like marriage mm. being a transaction, mm. and that idea that is so that's I feel like it's so prevalent throughout the text. That's what all the characters are kind of moving around is this idea of um, either wanting to marry someone or wanting to be married to someone or not wanting to, and the push and pull. Mm. And here I am sitting here going, well, we don't, we don't do that anymore. We don't treat women like that anymore. But yeah, I, do you know, it's very funny. I, I had a colleague once who said, you know, someone was t- talking about who they were dating it, and she goes, it's really important to be really Jane Austen about these things. And, the, and, and it's so funny because it sat with me for many, many years of, you know, we do need to be quite Jane Austen about these things. Do they have a job? Marriage is practical. It's not it's not purely love. And it's funny because I've, I've challenged classes on this before and go, do we marry someone just because we love them? And they'll say yes. And I go, no, let's think oh, yeah. about it. Let's think about it. If that person can't hold down a job and has some addictions and has all of this, do you marry them or do you marry the guy who's who's got money, who's okay, mm. you know, and he'll do all the right things? Do you marry him? And they all go, oh, you marry the other one. I go, yeah, so let's stop thinking that marriage, you know, even though this is a romance level, I think the reality of marriage being a very practical transaction, what, you know, and, and maybe in the 21st century a um, transaction that's a bit more equal, it is still very much a transaction, isn't it? And it is still yeah. a practical arrangement. We all have met, you know, the guy that you can marry, you know, that you can be with after your divorce, that it's going to be a very different lifestyle, but I don't think it is. I don't think it is. It's not practical. You couldn't have, you know, you couldn't raise a family with that person. Right, 
right? That's, yeah, okay. No, I'm, I, I hear what I, I, I take and agree with what you're with with what you're saying. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because we we idealize, or maybe is it because Hollywood has conditioned us to idealize mm. this idea that we're going to meet the the one that there's only mm. one out there. Like statistically, that's very problematic mm. if there is only one. But anyway, that's. <laughs> that's fine that we're going to meet the one and that person will automatically tick every single box that you have and be the perfect fit for you yeah. but that's you know that's not but yeah and I guess what Austin does is she actually talks about the nitty-gritty yeah and and that reality you know, I mean yeah and I mean think about it Disney Hollywood that all came post Austin and mm. so here's a woman talking about what it is in its reality, and I think maybe we like it, like I said, maybe at 17 I didn't have this insight, but now in my 30s I can definitely go, oh, that is the practicality of any type of relationship. And, and we see it, we don't just see it with the romances, we see it with the friendships as well, yeah. you know, of the presumptions we have of our friends and, and, and that thought, you know, and even our own prejudices, I guess, getting in the way of that. But um. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting concept, and I think there is there's a real realism to the text. Whether that was set in a different era, or if we even look at those issues today, there's a real reality to it. Yeah, I agree. I was I was talking actually with a student recently about the interplay where Collins has come to Longbourn, Longbourn, mm. and proposed very poorly to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth turns him down, and then. Mrs. Bennett, in true Mrs. Bennett style, is like, no, well, I'll convince her and goes to Mr. Bennett and says, you know, you must convince Elizabeth to marry Collins because he's going to leave, he's going to go away. And Mr. Bennett has that fabulous line where he says, you know, you have to choose between two parents. If you choose not to marry Collins, your mother will never speak to me again. I will never speak to you again if you do. And that Mrs. Bennett and Mr. Bennett function as two really beautiful symbols of perhaps the two, like two there's more than two schools of thought perhaps around marriage, but maybe the two most competing schools yeah. of thought at the time. And I think I think we forget, I think sometimes Mr. Bennett gets slandered as a father, but he's probably one of the most progressive people in the text. Absolutely. You know, when you when you look at that, you've got you, you're talking about two different schools of thought. And you're talking about Mrs. Bennett, you know, who is made to be humorous, but is a woman of absolute desperation. And, and yes. I know if you ever read the foreword in some of these, um, well, in the version I have, I have the, the foreword where, you know, they talk about what it meant to be a female and, and that presumption that women were, you know, submissive and all of those things. And, and they also speak about the erratic nature of you can't trust the woman because the erratic nature of her personality. Yet, and, you know, and I guess that's what Foster makes fun of with Mrs Bennett. However, if you think about every time she is erratic and, and she competes with Mr. Bennett, it's also about the fact that if she isn't like that, how do women have voices? Well, but I, but I think that's such that's such a such a good point because this idea that women and, and this kind of comes up in in other readings of the time, but that women were you know hysterical or mm. problematic had problematic behaviour. I think when you're systematically disenfranchised by a mm. society. To the extent that Mrs. Bennett is, because she's looking ahead at, she wouldn't be this that old too. I think that's the other thing to think about. Oh, if no, girls, forties maybe I would think. Yeah, right. And she could comfortably see another twenty years in her future of of life. Or mm. more. Now, if her daughters don't marry, 
when Mr. Bennett dies, and he, I, we get, I get the feeling is older than her. Mm-hmm. Um, she has nowhere. She has nowhere to live. She destitute. has. She's. She'll be left destitute. And I think that was the reality for a lot of women at, mm. of the time. They were left destitute because because of things like entailments and other legal frameworks that were designed mm. to benefit men. Sorry, I put my feminist hat on, but it's the, no, that's no, a reality. No, but there know. is there's a strong feminist read of the text, I believe, yeah. and and I think. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, they, they take point of that. And I think you also, like, even if you look at our key female characters, you've got Mrs. Bennett, and I think Austin does it on purpose. She does it to go, well, what's the right way of doing it, you know? And I think as 21st century readers and Elizabeth's the protagonist, we love Elizabeth. I start my classes by saying I am Elizabeth, you know, mm-hmm. love me. Yeah, and but then, I'm Elizabeth. So yeah, exactly. I, we're all Elizabeth until everyone. they point out all their flaws and we deny that we're Elizabeth at that point. But <laughs> it's it's really interesting because you've got, I don't think, I don't think society likes Elizabeth though. I don't think they like no. how she goes about things. And, and, then, and then you look at Jane who's this perfect, you know, she's that perfect ideal of what a woman should be. And yet we as the reader learn of all her flaws. She, mm. you know, is is this ideal of what society says a woman should be, is that actually really beneficial for a woman? No, she nearly loses Bingley. She nearly dies. Yeah. Because and she, we, we, no, well, she, she, she rides out in the cold to, yeah. well, I mean, that was at her mother's request. But, you know, she's she she just sees too much good like she doesn't have any pride to be able to to mm. see what is wrong right in front of her or to, to be able to to understand that people do have ill natures and and she's so naive. And so then, you know, if that's what's the side and maybe that's that's how they wanted women to be is naive yeah. and controlled. And we spoke about that transaction of a woman is a piece of property. And you know, and then you've got Mary, and I always wonder, I always wonder. If this was set today, would Mary be more of a hero than the girl that we dismissed to the side? I wonder what's is there a particular scene that you'd look at for that? To... I think I think it look, I guess the way Austin, the way I see, and I love Mary, and I think she's an awfully dismissed character, but she I is. think she the way she she's so measured and the way that she the way Austin uses her is always in points of contention. She's just the woman in the side in the in the sideline who is giving actual knowledge and true knowledge. You know, I think there's that line. She she differentiates, you know, what pride is versus what vanity is. And and she says, you know, pride is all about one's own opinion of themselves, whereas vanity has to do with controlling what everybody else thinks of you. And I think, you know, and I think maybe I don't explore it enough, but I always wonder, like throughout the text. There's that there's constant differentiation between pride and vanity, yet she's the one who starts that. She's the first character that Austin chooses to start mm. that conversation. And um because she is measured, I wonder that if in today's context and her independence, if it was set today, would Mary be more of a hero? I wonder. And do you know what else I'm wondering now? And this could be, and this is the ultimate flaw in watching film representations of texts yes. that you love. In the BBC, and I think also in the Kira Knightley movie, she's depicted as plain yeah. looking in, in contrast to her very beautiful sisters. 
Yeah. I'm now thinking, I'm now wondering, and it will probably take me some time, but is there textual evidence for that? Or was that a directorial decision that has then affected my reading of the text? And do I then discount her? That's terrible of me. And it, no, but it's funny you say that because I've always said that, you know, when we look at Austin and how she, Austin punishes her. Like Austin doesn't love her. Like, and yeah. I think there's a clear reading of Austin not liking her and not liking and and I I've made the same presumption that she is plain probably yeah. with the BBC. Why think, should that matter? Why you know a woman does yeah. not have to be the sum of her beauty? But yeah, but, but you know, but we also take the presumption that Charlotte's plain. Well, that's not a presumption. Mm. It's it is it's, said that she's not handsome. Yes, uh, and I think we kind of categorize her. I, I in my mind somewhat categorize Mary as a younger. Charlotte, to an extent, in, in, in that category of, you yeah. know, how do we differentiate women based purely on looks and, and what's going to lie in their future? And I do hate, there's this very clear scene in the BBC because this is my version of Mary going, I think she's undervalued and I don't think we, we interpret her as much. And then I do see scenes in the BBC where, you know, at one of the balls she's crying because no one danced with her, but yet I don't actually read her as that type of character in the text. In the text, yeah. That's yeah, a directorial decision. A line, yeah, there's a line where she goes, well, I guess everything in good measure is, you know, is really important and that I'm not opposed to going to the ball because, you know, I have enough time to read in the morning. And so I think it's very interesting what directors do and we have to be careful of our interpretation of text when we when we're influenced by by that. But, yeah, I, yeah, I think we both implied that she is plain. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think in, in this topic of um, connecting characters together, because I think that's a really effective thing to do when you approach text, especially mm -hmm. text that has so many characters to kind of see characters similarly because then that allows you to group them if it comes time to analyse. I feel like we see... Jane and Lizzie is in some ways aligned or, you know, because of their oppositeness and because they ultimately end up marrying Darcy yeah. and Bingley. But then we've got Kitty and Lydia. Mm. I feel like we've all known a Kitty and a Lydia. Yes. Like on that, from coming back to what you were talking about at the start of um, this, this conversation, I've known many, many a Lydia in my time, which is I think why she's such a dynamic but also frustrating character. And why even though even though she's so naive and well, is she not actually no is she naive i don't know i was thinking that i think she is and i think she's naive because her society she's in a society i think it's very much like i, I contrast it to a situation of maybe a girl being critiqued for what she's wearing yeah in, a, in in current day society but society says you should present like this and then or instagram says that you should take pictures like this and then you get Critique Slammed for it. And I, I feel like there's, you know, Lydia's living in a society and she's the youngest, mm. but she is naive and knowing that she must get married, she's 15, 16? Yes, yeah. 16. So she's in a society, she's an early bloomer and where she knows that she must get married and that means status. And at 16, like I said, when I read Pride and Prejudice at 16, I don't think I fully understood it. And so mm. in her world, this is what needs to happen and she's fulfilling her role as a female. Is she doing it in the right way? Well, no, you're competing against women who are in their 20s who have knowledge. And mm. she's what, the youngest of five girls, four girls, five? Five, yeah. Five girls. And I don't think she got taught 
the same no. things that the eldest two did. No. It's almost, I think there's something, a throwaway line where some Mr. Bennett just refers to her as silly. Yeah. So he's kind of discounted her. And I think that's why sometimes he does get criticised as a character in that he does tend to prefer Lizzie and puts a lot mm. of great, a great deal of time and effort and care into her and not into the other girls, which then, you know, if it, if it were not Darcy coming in and forcing Wickham to marry Lydia, the you know, the outcome of the, the book, it may not have been a comedy, it may have ended up a tragedy, you know. And we do, we, we do kind of, I think, critique him or a little bit. But, yeah, she's just discounted as silly, which is bizarre that in a society that really doesn't encourage her to be anything other than that. Like mm. you just said, like being intelligent the way Lizzie is, isn't an attribute it's kind of a, a hindrance almost to life mm. um it's, it, it's funny it makes me think and it's a tragic car- parallel but i i did debate it with my class in georgia and Ginny, the netflix series she gets up in front of the class and, and says that lydia is the ultimate feminist in that text okay she shouldn't be critiqued I, I don't agree with it I think Lydia is naive and I don't think I think she genuinely believes that Wickham loves her and that Wickham wants to be with her and that her whole elopement is actually I don't think she realizes that someone's hate that letter she says exactly it. of you'll yeah. all be and she laughs in that letter I I wish my dear Lizzie I wish you joy if you love Mr. Darcy half as well as I do, my dear Wickham, you must be very happy. It's a great comfort to have you so rich. <laughs> and when you have nothing else to do, I hope you will think of us. I'm sure Wickham would like a place at court very much. And I do not think we shall have quite enough money to live upon without some help. Like, that's so, I want to use the word unabashed, you know, just like, oh, we're a bit poor. So if you could send <laughs> us. Like you said. Yeah. You've known many a Lydia in your time and, 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 you know, some people stop maturing at 16. Like Lydia was always going to be that way and she's yeah. the youngest. And yeah. so, you know, this is the same girl who bought an ugly bonnet and didn't, but that she didn't even like, but sorry, family, I can't, you know, sorry, sisters, I can't buy you lunch because I wasted all my money on a bonnet, you know. She sees herself before she sees any other situation and I don't think that would change. For someone no. like Lydia. No, it's true. And she's her mother's favourite. She is her mother's, you know, I guess she's similar to her mother. And, and we see, you know, an older woman who's, oh, my poor nerves, oh, my poor nerves, before she sees any other situation. It's all about her, that selfishness. And but it's it's a selfishness, but not born of malice. It's a selfishness no. maybe born of, oh, now my brain's thinking, naivety. I think it is naivety. Like not even considering that someone else might have needs or wants or desires or not mm. being at all empathetic to anyone else. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Self-centred. Self-centred. Yeah. But it's funny because yeah. then you think about Kitty and Kitty is the sister that's ultimately saved. Mm. And I wonder if Kitty comes a little bit more into that plane bracket and because she's older than Lydia and yet she she allows like Lydia's the driving force and she gets you know um like pulled along by the, for the ride yeah. Yeah, yeah which is quite interesting because that's her younger sister you know maybe it's the Mary and the Lydia Mary and Kitty who are the more quiet sisters who are the more 
you know, one's more influenced by others and marries her own standalone individual. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting relationship there. And, you know, at the end of the text they comment on how, I can't remember what the exact words were, but how, you know, Kitty had been saved in a way or that she's she's come along well since she since she stopped being around Lydia. So Kitty to... Kitty, to her very material advantage, spent the chief of her time with her two elder sisters. In society so superior to what she had generally known, her improvement was great. Yeah. You know, and that's what they say about her. So it's like she's been saved, I guess. Yes. So interesting. And so the Bennett sisters then, you know, obviously they function as a number of really key females in the text. And we've talked a little bit about Charlotte, but I'm also interested in, you've also got like Georgiana Darcy mm. and Lady Catherine's daughter. Is it Antibet? You know, it's funny. I, I categorise Georgiana in the same category as Lydia. Yeah. Well, was that because they were both tricked by Wickham? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a lot of sympathy to be had for both of those girls because of their naivety and because of, and I think Georgiana's situation obviously is quite different. And I don't think, well, it's never portrayed that Georgiana's a floozy throwing herself at everybody, but they were both quite young and they were both very vulnerable mm. to, to the circumstances of their environment. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And I think sometimes I, I, I've, I notice when students talk or write about the text, they do maybe ignore Georgiana or, or forget mm. as a as an interesting reference point. But I think her story is important for a number of reasons. I mean, it's important from this kind of social commentary about the reality of being a wealthy, being like the, the idea of being a wealthy woman and then being maybe a not so wealthy woman that we've got with the Bennets. And it also functions as an important plot point, that, you know, as a motivation for why Darcy might have empathy for Lydia's situation yeah. as well. What you know, it allows him to make that significant character turn from being very prideful and having a lot of prejudice to casting those. Mm. Casting those he, he knows that the Bennets don't have the means to do, you know, and he saved his own sister, and that he had the means to do that to somebody else. Even though he does say to Elizabeth later, "I did this all for you." Mm. Um, you know, how would she have known? I think it, it it does talk about his selflessness in in using, and, you know, everybody who talks about Darcy would say that he's actually quite a generous man. Yeah. And, and I think it it does, he's the sort of man who proves things through his actions more than his words, and I guess. And once again, it does, it talks about society and what, what money can do in society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how that can destroy one's reputation or make it or, or how powerful money actually is as opposed to morals. I think I've seen an essay topic floating around that says literally Pride and Prejudice is about money and marriage. <laughs> do you agree? I kind of do. Like at, at its base, there is, more, yeah. like, you know, there is more to it in regards to story, but fundamentally they're the two ideological, social, cultural uh, constructs that, that Austin is, I mean, maybe highlighting but also parodying in her in her writing because that was and she chose she chose the upper class and nothing more nothing less really so she does she does want to look at the power of money and Mm. and I guess it's also it's a world that not all the readers would have been exposed to 
yeah as well yeah absolutely absolutely and so therefore they got a bit of an insight into you know how the other half lives mm. not even half how the upper upper one percent lives <laughs> Absolutely. So I love that we started with a feminist reading and that, that you love, that's, you know, that you all came from what you love, which is that the, the characters in the text are so, are so like us. What about, I mean, are there any characters that we see in the text that we don't recognise today? Are there? Yeah. I would say, and I mean, I guess it ties into that feminist reading, is that I don't think, I think Austen pities her society and I think mm. her inclusion of Wickham and mm. I think there's elements of Wickham that we do see today more Colonel Fitzwilliam and yeah. his situation because I think if she wanted to I think she does sympathize with men because she wouldn't have included Colonel Fitzwilliam if she didn't have pity whereas and I think she does pity Wickham to an extent like I think it's you know, very well alluded to that whatever's happened in the past has left him destitute, yet I think there's very much his own actions and his own experiences that have caused his situation. But then you have this great man who, let's be honest, may have been the better partner for Elizabeth in the scheme of things. Well, this is because he and he, the scene with him. Yeah. In the well, I think in the I feel like my brain is always so tuned to the BBC, but they're like standing in the green, you know, and they're having the conversation. Where is that in the book? Is so maybe does 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 Lizzie even think that that it might have been? I think so, and I think Charlotte even says, you know, he's he's your best match. Colonel is this where we start? This is an interesting question about Lizzie, and in, in you know, coming back yeah. to that comment that you made earlier about the pragmatic and practical elements of marriage. Mm, mm. I have read somewhere an analysis, somewhere it's in my brain, that looks at when Lizzie sees Pemberley. Yes. And how that marks she imagine, Yeah. She imagines herself the Lady Pemberley. And it it's the only scene in the book was one of the few settings that is described in great detail, suggesting that it was very, you know, important and wonderful. But that, you know, is there a little bit of fiscal mindset? A little bit of financial? I think so. I think, and I always argue that if Austen was such a feminist and really wanted to challenge the norms, Mm. Lizzie would not have married Darcy. Because when you look at who gets rewarded in this text, Lizzie's right up the top. She marries the richest man, right? And this is who Austen says we should be like. And then we've got, well, alludes to, you know, these are virtuous characteristics. And then you've got Jane who then marries Bingley. You've got Charlotte. So if you look at the ranking of that, even Lydia gets a shout out there. Yeah, and I think if she really wanted to say we marry for love and only love, Lizzie would not have married Rich. That's my own personal take. Yeah. If you wanted to, if you no. wanted to say that this is me and this is pushing the boundaries and people should get married 
for love and love alone and that stability, that practicality, like why would you not have married Colonel Fitzwilliam who you actually had a joyful connection with? Mm. I, I, I think Darcy and Lizzie have a good connection and they challenge each other is what yeah. they say. Yeah. But is that as much of love as it is an amicable from day one? You know, I guess it's like why we all admire Bingley and Jane. You know, Mr. Bennett says to Lizzie, I found it. I did that magic thing where I was like, I know there's this quote and I found it. This is the very end. So this is where she's come to him and said, Darcy's come to Mr. Bennett Mm. and asked for Lizzie's hand, which which was the the, the norm of, of the time. And Mr. Bennett basically says, you know, Lizzie, what are you doing? Are you out of your senses accepting exactly. this man? Have you not always hated him? And she, it's funny, Austin doesn't give us Lizzie's dialogue of what she says. She mm-hmm. does, you know, reported speech. How, you know, she she assured him with some confusion of her attachment to Mr. Darcy. So like, there aren't even words maybe that, that Austin can realise. Just, just to, I'm now supporting yeah. your reading just for funsies. I'm not sure yeah. if I... Not sure if I believe in it yet, but this is what we do. Or in other words, are you deter- you are determined to have him. That's what that's what mm-hmm. Mr. Bennett. He is rich to be sure, and you may have more fine clothes and fine carriages than Jane, but will they make you happy? Now, Lizzie tries to assure Mr. Bennett that yes, she will. She will. But he's worried that I know that you could be neither happy nor respectable unless you truly esteemed your husband, mmm. unless you looked up to him as a superior. Your lively talents would place you in the and greatest danger. It's mm. also, you know, that moment when she realises that Darcy earlier on in the text is somewhat admiring her and she actually, she feels like, oh, could he, she gets that flattering feeling of could a man like that actually admire me? Yeah. You know, so the money's always playing the role there. Yeah. Money, I mean, can we can we ever move away? Can we separate from it? Mm. It's, it's even a question maybe today in lots of relationships that are, you know, perhaps motivated by money. One of the first questions you ask a person is what the, like, yes, what do you in do? Pride and Prejudice, they announce how much they, they are worth. <laughs> you imagine if that's like as you walked into the room. <laughs> this is what you're worth. Who's <laughs> Claire? She's a, this thousand a year, you know. But we do subtly do that. We ask what profession people are in and then we make a presumption of what they earn and your reaction changes every time you find out. Someone walks in and goes, I'm a lawyer, you kind of change your tone. Someone walks in and says, you know, I lay bricks. I mean, they're probably earning about the same amount, but we still make that presumption. Yeah. and It's an ingrained social cues, right, that really should should not be. They, they're they're archaic and not yet society useful. still you know thousands of years on defines things the same way mm. Mm. and I mean I suppose at least in at least in Lizzie's age there was benefit of knowing how much men earned because as women you could not own property or earn any money so it was kind of like that was really relevant to you but in 2022, we can run our own businesses, own, you know, be independently wealthy. Women don't need men, are no longer mm. reliant on men for financial well, Some women are, but women hopefully can be independent and financially yeah. independent. Yeah. Gosh. Now you're changing. You're changing my, my perspective on Lizzie. 
like I said, I am Lizzie, but I I know her flaws. <laughs> but this is, you know, this is this is why I love these conversations, and I hope, you know, for students. Listen, I don't know. This is my my relationship with Lizzie goes like goes back twenty years. Mm. Twenty years I've been reading this book. And, and loving the fact that she and Darcy get together at the end. Mm. Oh, no, I love, you know, but I also love that concept of Darcy. And I think mm. I also say, though, if this was a modern-day tech, because Darcy is this ultimate hero, Austin makes us love him. Yeah. And I think a lot of it actually goes back to her plot. And I think her, her plot's all about knowledge. You yeah. know, we call it Pride and Prejudice, but it's it's how does knowledge and who has the knowledge and who do we get knowledge from that really drives our pride and our prejudice. And I just think that at the end, and I still feel it, you know, to this very day of, oh, but we just love Darcy, you know, and she makes him out to be a hero. Yet Mm. in reality today, would we think he was a little bit of a prick? Well, yeah, we probably would. There's still so many facets of his personality that just don't quite, you know, I mean, when we read the text and it's a romance and the way Austin does it, we're like, oh, what a hero, like what a great man. But Mm. if we really sat there and thought about it, is he really? Or is he just using his money and his power to buy her affection? That's it. Yep. Well. That's a very cynical reading. <laughs> I like a cynical reading, but yeah. He does have redeeming factors. I mean, he does want to include her. He does want all of that. But even he is scared. He was scared of his affections for her. Mm. In his first proposal, yeah, he I think we have to honored. talk about that proposal. Yeah. That, it's you not. Know, you know, like he insults her whole family and then says, and then he's, you know, flabbergasted when he gets rejected. Despite, despite your poor connections and yeah. what is it? Now I want to find it. Now you should feel honoured that I'm asking you such a thing. Yes. <coughs> yes. It's not great. It's interesting though now, now I'm thinking, you know, to a certain extent this trope of a man or this trope of a romantic hero Mm. We we continue to see it today. You know, I think about the criticisms of characters like, you know, Christian Grey in The Fifty Shades, you know, this idea of a, yeah. a man who's broken and, you know, a woman has to come in and she's the only one who can fix him, mm. that kind of that kind of trope that we see, which positions this idea as women is that we're able to, you know, fundamentally change a person just simply mm. by being in close proximity but that's something that's been, a lot of the like vampires when they're werewolves yeah. and that, that those ideas were based on that same premise that you know a, a non-vampire non-werewolf girl mm. could and we I mean yeah that was Twilight but those others could come in and and just simply by exist bring out a humanity in the previously hardened and animal-like you know very masculine man Mm. Um, which I will sit on any any high horse and criticize that. But now I'm starting to think of Darcy in that same vein. Now you're talking, now you you bring up these points and saying, well, what if we did reposition him or reposition it in that way and saying that, um, you know, he is very gruff, very disagreeable, only really attractive because of his money. And yes, he does redeem himself to a certain extent by the end, but really only as a means to cement affections from Lizzie. I don't even know why I'm saying this. Peter, you're changing me. 
No, but then, but then at the same time, is Darcy just shy? Is that why he comes out that way as well? We don't know. That's true. There's a lot to be said about is Darcy just shy? Is he socially awkward? Because, you know, I mean, he says it himself, like unless he's well acquainted with people, he's not really one to make conversation. He's not. He's, he's not. He's being polite. Well, this is the thing, and is shy, is being shy an excuse for being rude? What if you don't know you're being rude? What if no one taught you? Yeah. Or maybe hmm, it's an interesting one. Yeah, because he is definitely rude in certain circumstances mm. and he's aware of that. He does look down on the people. Oh, I don't know. No, there's, a, there's an element of pride there. Yeah. I'm trying to find I'm still trying to find this proposal. Oh, it's on. I've got it here. In vain uh, have, have yes. I struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me how much I. Yes, oh. I ardently love you. You. His sense of her, his sense of her inferiority of its being a degradation of family obstacles, which judgment had always opposed. Oh, spoke of apprehension and anxiety, but his countenance expressed real security. In vain, I have struggled. It will yeah. not do. My feelings would not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently and I admire and love you. But she's angry in the way that he speaks to her because mm. because he is so he is so critical of her family. And she's pretty rude to him too, though. Actually, she gives it she gives it as good as as good as she gets. She really um, does. And I think she does from from the start. You know, I mean, there's that, you know, he, one of their first conversations, she turns around and she goes, she talks about his flaws. What does he say? So he's like pride will always be under good regulation and she goes, she criticises his pride and then he, he, he pulls her back into line and he goes, well, willfully, you choose to willfully misunderstand everybody as well. Yes, yes. So, That's when they're taking they're taking a turn about the room, aren't they? Mm, mm. You know, they're kind of teasing him. Okay, so so we've talked about we've talked about this idea that the characters are really relatable and that their idea, you know, their their tropes that we we see in in modern day, we see them in our friends and our family, perhaps, or in, in characters we see on the TV. And we've done a really nice, what I've enjoyed, a very nice deep dive into marriage and money which really are two key key constructs of the text and kind of come around to this, this idea of Darcy. You've challenged my reading of him. I've now gone on a, I've gone on a sideways. My brain's gone sideways thinking about other, you know, male love interests in romance novels. Just I'll, I'll, I'll sit on that one for a little while and see how, see how it settles. I think I have to read the book again now. This is what's going to happen. But is, I mean, a lot, is, is, the, is the book just about marriage and money? Is there more to it? It's not just about marriage and money. I think it's about knowledge. I think it's about, I think she constructs, I think she's so crafty, Austin. I think she constructs her whole text on the power of knowledge and she deceives us, the reader, in the same way that she deceives the the characters themselves. And I think we... We love Elizabeth and, you know, maybe someone who's read it many times and is cynical and then pulls Elizabeth apart. The way Austen constructs this text as her as the protagonist is for us to love her. Hmm. And 
And when they open the text and, you know, as cynical as we can be of um, Mr Bennett, it's Mr Bennett who gives his approval of her being more intelligent than the rest, right? So it's Mm. built up as, well, we must trust Elizabeth and her opinion. And we go on the same ride as Elizabeth, even though at times it's foreshadowed and we can see that she's she's wrong. Yeah. I think the shock of the truth of reality of Wickham, the first time you read the text, mm. is just a big shock, even though it is foreshadowed of you know, trust everything you hear. And um, we've got, you know, one of the Bingley sisters warning her. We've got Jane warning her. Yeah, how much do we trust those two characters? We don't, we don't at that point in time. No. I think I think it's about knowledge. And I also think, you know, you talked about those key scenes. So you spoke about when when Elizabeth's father, so Mr. Bennett goes, Are you sure this is what yeah. you want? And we don't hear her words. Once again, we don't have knowledge of what she actually says. In my mm. head, in my head, she's saying, Yes, this is the man I love. There's that scene of when Wickham and Darcy are first face to face. And one goes red and one goes white. Yet we aren't, she's so crafty, we aren't told who actually goes red and who goes white. We um, make that presumption. And so we as readers lack knowledge the whole way around. And yet we have made, like we've just spoken at, we've made so many presumptions along the way, yeah. but we don't have the full knowledge. And yet our bias and our pride and our prejudice aligns with, and I think her key message is, that sometimes as knowledgeable and as respectable as you can be, and I think I love Elizabeth because she is real. She's not this perfect person. She has flaws. And, yeah. and I guess her flaw is her pride of thinking that she is correct, and she is in many cases, mm. can also be incorrect because somebody offended her and because she didn't read the situation correctly. I mean, she's best friends with Charlotte and she said, you would never marry like that. Yet Charlotte then does that, you know. I think it's very interesting. I think it. I think, and I don't know. I I don't feel that students necessarily write about plot very well, and I think oh. that's the the key to it. Is is that is how do I talk about the deception of plot? Because I think plot can be a difficult thing to write about, and we need to look at those turning points and those absences. And she's very crafty. Um, Austin's very crafty in talking about the absences in the text or those 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 presumptions that we make to then make us, so when we feel the shock, hold on a second, what did we actually, only if we went back and go, what did we actually know? And we say, oh, no, but he did this, find me the evidence. We can't actually find it. So she's forcing us to make the same presumptions and assumptions that the characters are making. I think so. I think so. I think our bias lies with that, you know, and I, I talk about Mary and my love for Mary on my third, fourth, fifth reading of it. Yeah. Completely dismissed her the first couple of times. Yeah. Because that's what Austin wanted us to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that too, this idea that through multiple readings, that's where we start to, like you and I are discussing this text, both having had a relationship with it for For the same amount of time. Yeah. 20 years, you know. Yeah. Well, give me my age. But, you know, (laughs) from high school, from, from studying it and, that 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 reading that we have of the text is is also informed by watching film adaptations of it and being impacted by directorial decisions, film decisions, all those kind of elements as well. And and being mindful, I think, of that is important when when students are approaching the text. Mm. 
that it's okay if they don't really, they aren't really sure the first time through or they didn't really understand something or that they are really shocked by something on a first read through. We really want to be reading, I would say, two, maybe even three times before the exam in an ideal world so that they, you are getting that chance to have that third read and go, I didn't mm. notice that last time. There's so much insight to be had. But I like that idea that it's about knowledge and who has the knowledge. And, and you know, there's that saying that knowledge is power. Mm. Mm-hmm. And who does have the knowledge? And, and you know, I mean, Darcy had the knowledge about Wickham and could do something about it. But he even makes it a decision. He, he often has the knowledge, except he didn't have the true knowledge of Jane. He thought no. poorly of her, remember, and he pulls, he pulls Bingley out of that situation. Yeah. But it's another wrong. warning from Austin, isn't it? The, the power of our presumptions and our misconceptions and what that can actually lead to. Yeah, because doesn't he say that he thought Jane didn't seem kind of demonstrably enough in love with Bingley hmm. that because she is so quiet and so demure? Like you, I mean, like you mentioned, she is hmm. the quintessential, you know, romantic era woman, and yet because she is all of those things, Darcy thinks that she doesn't really love Bingley. Yeah, and very much clouded by her her mother and. And Lydia, yes. and that very clear claim for I want money. Yeah. Yes. I suppose how much we can be uh, judged for the faults of, of our family too and our parents mm. coming through. Oh, that's really interesting. That's really interesting that you say that because, yeah, there's so many times that Lizzie's shocked or we're shocked alongside. I remember the first time I read, I was really shocked that Charlotte chose Collins because Ooh. we are positioned to dislike him so much. But we also, we pity her. And yeah. I don't think Austin wants us to pity her. I think Charlotte is the most intelligent woman in the text. She ends up kind of pretty well off yeah. too. Yeah. And, you know, and, and people pity, pity her because she doesn't have love. But we go back to this practicality. She is well set. And from a life that she had, this life is better. And she says that to Lizzie, doesn't she? Like they have a conversation where Lizzie's like, what, like, why? Mm. And she explains, you know, very rarely does her husband come into the house. And Um, she can keep him at bay with the garden and she can keep him at bay with all of Lady Catherine and, yeah. You know, she's going to inherit her best friend's house. Yeah. Yes. Right. Well, because that's part of that entailment, isn't it? I think she is. I think she is so funny if we flip the script, but I think she's the quintessential um, modern female. Like I think for Austin to say what should they be like, mm. I think she's correct. But I think she's also what men have been warned about their whole lives of don't trust the female because they're manipulative and and because she, she shows us. And I think females, they do. We do have this power of, Let's plant the seed and let's make things happen the way. And maybe because society has made us be that way. Yeah. But she demonstrates how to do that very well and she benefits from it. She does. She does. And she ends up, you know, mistress of a nice house. Mm. And and she doesn't, she, you know, her famous line of, you know, happiness in marriage is very much, a, it's a chance. It's not, yeah. like she's Never not going into and you know, whilst we may pity her, she's not going into it wanting happiness. She no. she she accepts that that may not be something that she ha- you know knows, and she goes, you know, it's best not to know their flaws beforehand. 
Yeah. You know, so that's a very different perspective. And I think it makes it a little bit easier and a little bit more successful for her. Well, yeah, yeah. You're right, and I think she probably is the most pragmatic out of all of them, isn't she, mm. really? No, you make you make a fair point. And he's not a bad man, Collins. You know, he may be obsequious, he may be loquacious and verbose and unnecessarily kind of pandery. I mean, E-R, not A, panda. You know, like he panders to people. But he's not a bad person. No. Not a, you know, fundamentally he's not, he's not Wickham, you know, no, he's not a philanderer or a gambler. He's a religious man who likes powerful people. Mm. Because society tells him he should. Right. Goodness. We I feel like we're at the point. This is I, I told you this we happens. Are. We're at the point. Okay, I'm asking you the questions happening. What's the point of pride and prejudice, Panita? What is the point? I think the point is to make us realize that we as humans are flawed and that we need to keep ourselves in check, like we need to keep our pride and our prejudice in check. I think you can't write an essay on pride and prejudice and forget that it's called pride and prejudice. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's there for a reason. And so how, you know, us as humans, because it, it all has to do with human nature, is how do we keep our own pride in check and then how does that affect our prejudices or how does our prejudice affect our pride Mm. um, as well and maybe that's ultimately and I think like we said before this is not a Disney film it's not this Hollywood everybody happy ending it's a very real text and I think it is about going here I am here's all these real characters that we recognize in our own world who am I in this text and what do I need to do to change I like that because mm. I think we all in my head. I'm impressed that that came out of my mouth just then. I, listen, you're very, <laughs> very, very impressive. But I, I like that idea that I think, especially even in you know, parallel to what's going on in today and in the world that we live in today, having a little bit less pride and a little bit less prejudice mm. wouldn't be such a bad thing. Just a little bit. What's the, the I'm trying to think of the opposites, the antonyms selflessness and mm, understanding humility, yeah. humility yeah they're not such bad not such bad attributes i've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation yeah i feel like it went in a very cool feminist direction <laughs> but i'm ne- i'm never going to say no to <laughs> it's the only reading no there's lots of other interpretations but yeah this is the one we went with. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for Thank you. your insights. And I hope I hope you have a fantastic year and your students, are, no doubt, will love um will love lots of discussions about the the nuances of, of money and marriage and pride and prejudice. Yeah. Thank right. you. Really enjoyed that. Pleasure. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you did get something out of today, I'd love for you to support the show by donating a virtual coffee using the link in the show notes or on my Instagram bio at Teachers Talk Texts. I really love hosting this podcast and I want to continue doing it, but I do need your support. If you don't already follow me at Teachers Talk Texts, definitely do as I post updates about the podcast there, as well as other opportunities to learn more about the text in BC and English. See you next time. Bye. Bye.